Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Theology Thursday. This is the man who needs no introduction, and, Isaac Serrano. Yeah, and this is the person who does need an introduction. Some of you don't know who he is. His name's Sam. What's, what's your last name again? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Sam. I, <laughs> dude. I, that was like the biggest slow ball for you to insult me that's ever been pitched in yeah. human history. Yeah, and Kevin's, Kevin, Kevin set it up. Now, Dow's actually already here early. Usually, he's a little late to the party. Dina Bless is always on time. That's true. Jacob's super early, too. Great to see you guys. Now, uh, last week was record-level digressions in the history of Theology Thursday. I mean, probably oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a full yeah. 20% of our discussion was on It sitcoms. was fun, though, and we got a lot of good feedback about it. So uh, we'll, we'll allow those side, side missions to occur every yeah. so often. And we're, gonna, we're actually going to launch a side project podcast that's going to be Theme Song Thursdays, where we just analyze... Oh, I thought you were talking about our rap game side no, project. Oh, that's that, you're talking about... Simon and Garfunk. Simon and G-Funk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that... No, the, the theme song podcast is real it's happening we're gonna t like analyze theme songs then we'll sing original arrangements of them mm -hmm. together wait a second is this is it darkwing again though because no did you this is the, the right real one, one. <laughs> you came prepared did you do this today yes. everybody just take this in it's a good this is a good jam it's a good song you need to make some commentary oh yeah this is under fair use because we're making commentary on yeah. See, yeah, the, the commentary, and this this will be my Jordan Peterson, is that the Uncle Duck, whose inner dragon is his greed for wealth, right. he has to go, if you remember in the open thing, he has to dive, dive into, into the dragon itself. of his wealth in order to go into it and die and then come up going, I'm back. Yeah, the only problem is he emerges as greedy as ever yeah, he's just and then just bad. swims around in the money. Yeah, I, I mean, I was. <laughs> Drew goes, really? All I heard was negative feedback. Well, dang, that's because you're talking to yourself about what you thought about it, Drew. That was just the worship set from last yeah, week. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have got to jump in. Thank you guys for being here for this series. We've been in a long series, um, all based around Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible. So one last plug for that. Amazing book. Highly recommend it. And um, we've just been walking through some of the most difficult subjects in the Bible. And so we've appreciated all of you guys following along with us. Tonight is our Q&A wrap-up episode for this series. Starting next week, we'll be in a series that is still not titled, but it's about what the church is, understanding the church from a theological perspective and the various things it does, um, and especially kind of thinking through after the pandemic that we've gone through, um, what is the church and how should the church be seen in light of some of the things we've learned and seen over the last year. Pretty good summary yeah. of what we're going to do? Yeah, we don't have a good title yet, so if you got something, make the suggestion. Yeah, put it in the in the comments. Oh, also, be, today's Q&A, and we want to give you time on the right now, if you're joining us live, to submit questions in the chat box. So if you have a question that you didn't get to submit earlier, uh, we might prioritize ones that come in live. Yeah, and that could be anything. It doesn't have to be directly related to the series, but the general subject of the Bible... And, you know, questions about weird Bible mm -hmm. passages. We do have some really good ones that we're going to get to. Um, some, some of you guys brought up some strange, strange stories that are really good. Hopefully we'll not just answer your question about that specific story, but we'll shed some good light on how we can read these texts well. Um, so should we jump in? Anything yeah. else we need to cover? Yeah. Kevin, what about you? What do you, what do you got how to you, say, man? How you doing, Kevin? 
I'm good. He's good. <laughs> He's all right. This is the My difference man between many words. Like if Stan was here, like he was the other day, we wouldn't dare say, "Stan, what do you think?" Because then he'd either take over the whole show, yeah, or be, be like, unable to speak the English language because of the echo. It all started with a young boy named Stanley, filled with strength, and, and you know this. You're it's over yeah. from there, man. And then and he lost, it. and we don't have the power to mute him. In fact, it goes the other way. So, Kevin, we thank you for your temperance, if that's the way to use that word. Um, okay, first question came in from Anne-Marie Llewellyn. Um, I don't know if you're watching live. Or I, she's spoken to me about how she sometimes has to watch later. Um, but she had a question about biblical name changes. And she says, some name changes appear to have meaning, and others seem to have no metaphoric meaning. Um, some seem to be like, you know, double entendres, like they mean more than one thing. Um, and so, so she just says, it's kind of hard to follow. Is there any consistent pattern to that? Or how am I supposed to know if a name change or, or a character having multiple names is significant? She uses examples like Abraham and Sarah, Jacob's name being turned to Israel, mm-hmm. Saul suddenly being called Paul. What are your thoughts on that? Well, kind of to, to take one step backwards is, is that in, in many cultures, it's still to this day, na- names have far more, oh, you made a spelling mistake? You did. It's embarrassing. Uh, I'm looking far- like, like Dow typing in here. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> um, names have far more significance than, than just the actual. Like I like the way it sounds. Yeah. Like most, most of the time, a lot of people pick names because they like the actual name, the way it sounds, and they might know a little bit about what it means because they googled like name yeah. meaning. They make sure it doesn't mean something whack. Yeah. Before they. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's the rule. It's like if I like the name and it sounds pretty, let me just Google it so it doesn't mean something weird. And then usually it's it's fine, but um, many times they have significant meanings. So my name Isaac, in Hebrew means laughter, and in the story, laughter played a significant component in the narrative. Do you know what your your name means? Yeah, mine means asked of God because it's it's. Uh, why are you making that face? <laughs> what did you say? Did you say that right? I said asked with a K. <laughs> I realize now it sounds, it probably sounded like this. <laughs> no, that's, it's a, it's a name. It's the name of Balaam's donkey okay. in the story. <laughs> Asked. Yeah, make sure that of God. is real sharp. Um, and it's, it's from this story where the mother of Samuel comes to the temple and she's desperate I mean, to have a son. It's all right. I'll, t- I'll say this to you guys to while camera. I, I'll go straight to camera while Isaac has a moment. <laughs> Hannah, the mother of Samuel, can't have a son and is desperate for one, and so she is asking God for a son, and when he gives her one, she names him Shemuel, asked of God, asked. Got it, got it. <laughs> so sometimes names are changed because they're given extra meaning or new meaning, and so you see that with um, Simon Peter. Yeah. Um, but also, to be fair, and I don't know like exactly why this is but sometimes you just get an alternate name or a name change and it's just sort of like yeah Meh. like paul and, and jacob brought this up in the chat paul um paul saul is not really a name change there's no moment in the narrative where god assigns him that name or where it's changed and there's a really good chance it's just like the greek versus hebrew way of saying the name from what i understand um and then there's other ones like you said that the significance isn't apparent i think the really this doesn't answer every question, but the simplest guiding principle is probably if the text points out yeah. something significant. No, that's true. Or if the Hebrew meaning of the name matches. It's so obvious, like laughter. A lot of the time it'll be like, call me Mara because I'm so bitter. And you yeah. find out Mara means bitter. That one's easy. But there was like the example where God tells the 
the prophet Nathan to tell David yeah. to call Solomon Jedediah. And after that, there's no mention of it really. It's just like, meh, Solomon, Jedediah. From here on out, we're just going to call him Solomon. Yeah, you guys ever notice that? It's really strange. Solomon is born and David names him. And Nathan the prophet comes because God's like, I like this kid. Call him Jedediah. And he just doesn't. <laughs> yeah. But, so I don't know if that's significant or not, actually. I've never, I've never looked deeply into that. Some of them are also significant. You know, Abram's name being changed from Abram, which means exalted father, mm -hmm. to Abraham, which means father of multitudes or something. Yeah, of many or something like that. So, so. It's, it, he's, he's giving like a trajectory. It's like a yeah. truly prophetic naming. And honestly, I know you're the same way, Isaac. I name my children that way. Not that there's a, like a, an actual act of you know, future telling prophecy happening, but it's yeah. a hopeful, optimistic expression of my desires for my kids, what I named them. Yeah, so a lot of, and that's true of majority of the names in the Bible, even if there's not something specific to the narrative, like laughter. Yeah. Majority of the names mean like, you know, God be exalted. Yeah. Yahweh is righteous. Yahweh is yeah, some good attribute. Yeah, so it's 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 aspirational, or as I like to say, aspirational. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> so your point I think oh, summarizes it well when the Bible clues you in and makes it obvious or the name means something in the narrative pay attention Abraham's clearly one of those examples but sometimes just people get different names there's tons of places um, in the world where when people become Christians they get a different name yeah so that's true in Tanzania a lot of the people they'll be called kindness yeah. or peace, peace or hope. And it's, that's their Christian name. So they were born with a given name and then they become a Christian and they get to choose a new name. And I believe all over the world, that's how the Eastern Orthodox do it. So after you go through whatever the catechesis process is, I don't even know if that's what they call it in the, in the Eastern Orthodox church, but I believe you emerge from that and receive a new name. Yeah. Um, so that there's something very cool about that, especially I think if you've come from a different faith background, like a, like some of our Tanzanian yeah. friends, and you're like, yeah. now my name is Patience, and it's mm -hmm. a Christian virtue, and it's it's different than yeah, and a lot of it uh, takes place because the original name had ties to another religion. Yes, so exactly. So it's like I am no longer going to be called. Well, like in the Bible, there's people named like Eth Baal. Yeah, and it's named after some foreign deity, Baal, in that sense, and so you become a Christian the equivalent to that, yeah. and then you change your name. It's pretty cool. So yeah, just look for the text to point out that it's significant. And the good news is usually if there's a name mentioned that's significant, there will be a footnote saying what that word means. Even like place names are like that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time it'll be, you know, they call the name of that city, blah, blah, blah. And there'll be a footnote that'll tell you, you know, that name means well or whatever. So yeah, just look for it. Um, should we do, should we, Jump in and, and into the chat and do answer Zakia's question real quick. Yeah, is that ask ask questions in the chat? We'll get to them right now. Yeah, Zakia's got one. She says, "Hello, everyone. My questions are: Will those in hell have a physical body, and what will they be doing if they are turned over to themselves? Will one be able to kill another?" Now, there's not a whole lot we can say specifically to this. No, except I mean, the one thing that I would say is that the Bible's clear that both. Believers and unbelievers get resurrected, and then there's a judgment. Um, what that judgment looks like to a physically resurrected body, if it's not in hell, is is sort of beyond what I mean. What we could even think about it's it's sort yeah. of like just it's a completely different category of category and mode of being. But suffice to say is that there's nothing to indicate that people would be able to do 
harm to each other. This is, it's, it's the just punishment of God. It's not chaos. It's not like all these people get thrown somewhere and then they yeah, have to you guys survive. It it's yeah. like survival island or something like that. It's, there's the, whatever, whatever it looks like, it's the just and good punishment of God um, taking place. But that's, that's about as, that's about as far as we can go. And the but Bible, it's bad, but bad. Whatever it is, it's bad. I mean, the scriptures speak of it in horrible light all throughout. Yeah, and I think one of the most important things to point out about hell in the way it's talked about in the Bible is that what you have are not really descriptions in a kind of like, you know, direct way, but images that all have different resonances. And mm. some of them are even contradictory. So if you take them in an overly concrete yeah. way, how can hell be utter outer darkness and fire at the same time? Those two things don't coexist yeah, in the same space. fire, you can't have darkness. The point is that utter darkness is bad and fire is bad. Yeah, in so they're using ways. that language in an analogous way to communicate very bad. Yeah, and I think the, the central image that you see over and over again is that it's outside. It's, it's a place that is out, um, which is really interesting. So it's, it's almost defined negatively a lot of the time. So yeah, I, I, again, that's, that's about as far as we can go because the Bible just doesn't give us a lot of specifics, but great question, Zakia. Now, here's, here's one that I'm going to answer. I wish we could really dive into the text on this one, but we have kids who watch the show, and it's about a really, really dark, horrible story. Mm -hmm. um, so Ellen Waddell, one of our regular viewers, asked, I have struggled with Judges 19. Will you discuss this, this section, especially the cultural aspects of the chapter? Now, Judges 19 is the very beginning, or the very end, rather, of the book of Judges, which is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. Um, Mm -hmm. horrible, brutal stuff. It's just kind of throughout the book of Judges, things in Israel are getting worse and worse and worse. And the story ends with, um, and again, I'm going to be vague because it's so dark and horrible and we, we do get kids watching the show. Um, the story ends with a very specific, very grotesque sin taking place in an Israelite city. And you could read it, and this is probably what Ellen's question is, and go like, what is happening here? Why are we getting all these details? Why is this particular story? Why even tell this mm -hmm. gross story? And the short answer is everything about Judges 19 is mirroring an earlier story from the book of Genesis. And that story is about horrible sins that occur in a city called Sodom. And Sodom is the city that in the Jewish mind is the archetype of the evil city, evil people doing evil things, the, the kind of the worst of the worst of organized humanity is Sodom. And God destroys it for that reason in the book of Genesis. So to make a long story short, when you get to Judges 19, you are reading a story that parallels a story about Sodom. And what you're supposed to be seeing as you read that story is all of the things that happened in the worst city imaginable to the Israelite mind are now happening in Israel. Yeah. Israel has become Sodom. That's what you're supposed to see there. And so it is, I'm not saying that it's a made up story. It's historical. It happened, but it's being told in a way that intentionally mirrors of all the sinful, horrible things that happened in Israel at that time. Yeah. The author tells this story because he noticed that it's, it exactly mirrors what happened in Sodom mm -hmm. all those generations ago. So again, you're supposed to see that and go, wow, Israel has become as bad as Sodom. God's people have become just as corrupt as the worst possible people on the other side. Yeah. So if you want to look deeper into that, read Judges 19 and then go back into, into the book of Genesis. Um, I, I should have looked up where, where the Sodom and Gomorrah story takes place. I'm sure Dina Bless is about to help us out. And, uh, but it's somewhere in the, in the 20s of um, Genesis. You'll find that story. All right, you want to jump to another one? 
I was going to make a guess on what chapter it's in exactly. Do it. I don't want to. Do it. I'm, I'll look it up right now. I don't think I, it's in the I 20s. I wanted to say 19. I think you're closer, but I think it's less than that. Kevin thinks less than 19. It, he's doing the prices right. Thing, I said 20s. <laughs> Isaac was the only screen, so I'm not cheating. Kev Isaac was the only brave one who said it was 19. And the answer, once you look at it, is 19. Genesis 19. Hey, there's a reason why some yeah. people are just pastors. Yeah. And but I was already prepared. It'd be like, if you said 18, I was like, that's manuscript di yeah. division, man. <laughs> Actually, the older Hebrew manuscripts. The older Hebrew manuscripts, man, it's a little earlier. The Masoretes put it in 19. It's okay. No big deal. Plus, I mean, honestly, I said the 20s, and for me, Price there were right, no well, chapter man. numbers You're in over. the original yeah. text. You're over, you man. You're totally over. You lose. You, you don't even get a dollar now. You don't get to, oh, never. What was the game where you dropped the, is it? On Price is Right, where you, it's like you drop the little coins in it. I did not watch Price no, is Right. that is. Plinko. Plinko, man. Plinko. Plinko. Kevin yeah. doesn't know what chapter the Sodom and Gomorrah story yeah, is. Yeah, but he knows that, man. He, he got that deep Plinko. level game show baby boomer knowledge, man. Are we gonna, let's not do the game show version yeah, of what okay. we did with sitcoms yeah. last week. Yeah, because we don't want to bring up uh, Legends of the Hidden Temple on Nickelodeon, oh, man. Oh, yes, blue barracudas. we do. Oh, man. <laughs> yes, now we're in my era. All right, okay. next question. Okay, this is a question from Susan Mister. Um, she asked, She asked, and this is a quick answer, but it's really helpful. Can you explain the term weights and measures used in Proverbs along with differing measures? It mentions that these things are an abomination to Yahweh. So what's, what, why are weights and measures and why is God mad about them? Yeah, picture, I mean, the best image probably um, in our culture is Lady Justice holds scales in her hands. And it's basically... You know, you're you're meant to to picture this this tool where there's two different scales that measure measure things on, and you put like a pound of gold on one, and then you put a pound of wheat on the other, or something like that. And if they're perfectly even, then you know that's a pound for a pound, and then you go, okay, I'm selling you a pound of wheat, and it cost X amount of money. But the idea is that they would use unjust scales that were weighted falsely, so that you could essentially be giving someone less wheat. Um, right. and or the weights that they off. had as a seller, right? Cause you would, you'd have like, this is my standard pound. So mm -hmm. here's a pound, here's the wheat and the, but it's not actually a pound. It's an unjust weight in that sense. And what you were describing would be an unjust scale. So two different yes. ways of cheating. Yeah. People. Two different ways of cheating. That's right. Um, and God hates it because typically it was done to the poorest of, of the poor. You don't have the resources to challenge it and you need your food. You got to feed your family. And so you were just getting ripped off. It'd be like the best example, the modern example. We used this actually in a sermon recently was that when you go to the gas station, yeah. there's a little sticker somewhere that basically certifies that some outside organization tested and is verifying that when it says, whatever gas is up to now, $7 and 56 cents <laughs> a pound, a pound, there's a only pound, a gallon, a, ga a gallon <laughs> that actually a gallon is dispensed at seven dollars yeah. and fifty. And you know, this is the funny thing about laws and rules. The reason someone has to go check that. Yeah. Lets you know that at some point somebody was pretending and yeah. scamming. And think, I mean, you just change it by two cents per, per gallon. And that taking place over and over again over a long period of time can make you some money or it could be off by a whole quarter type type of thing. So, um, so yeah, the, the message there is God hates unjust, corrupt business practices, which it sounds kind of like ho-hum and not that exciting. But dude, if you actually start thinking about that yeah. and think about the way most of us live our lives and how 
how small of a deal it feels like to cheat a little bit financially mm-hmm. when you have an opportunity to. Um, it's very convicting. I mean, it's very, very normal in everyday life for us as modern Western people to just be like, if I can, you know, if I can cheat a little bit in a way that's not going to hurt anybody, but it's just, you know, we'll save yeah. me a little bit. Yeah. It's like, um, here's a good example. No, no shade thrown at people in the chat who have done this, but it's like when you sell a car to a private party, you can write yeah. a different number than what the price actually was so that the person you're selling it to pays less taxes and you kind of, you know, on yeah. the side can arrange to bullsh- split the savings. that. Or way. you could tell the lady or dude at the uh, fast food place, I just like a glass for water. I just like a cup for water. And you put soda up in there. And then you put soda. Now you notice this is how this is how common it is. Is all the places start using clear cups now for water. And it's not because they wanted to use clear cups to distinguish customers' drinking habits. It was because everyone was getting that Dr. Pepper and Mountain yeah. Dew. And now they have to steal Sprite if they're going to steal. That, yeah, you got to steal that Sprite. <laughs> yeah, that's so. Th- it is a convicting verse, actually. And, and not just a verse. That's all over the Bible. Yeah. That's and as idea. you said, it's a principle. It's not just the weights. It's business practices. So for Christians, I encourage you to, to support businesses as well that you believe are fair and right and honest. doing and, and honest. And if you have to pay a little more to support the company that's not using the slave labor or something like that, do it. Yeah, I agree. All right. Should we jump into one of the, there's one here. That's a big one. That's going to take a while, Uh-oh. but it's, it's really cool and really it's just a bizarre story that I'll bet a ton of you have never heard. Um, but it's a great example of how to do some deep exegesis of a difficult passage. You ready? I'm ready. All right. This is, if you've got your Bible, um, in the words of Lisa Dowler, get your Bibles out. Those of you who watch the uh, South Valley devotionals will remember that. That's a deep cut. 2 Samuel 21, verse 14 verses. Jacob Serpa asked this excellent question. He says, in 2 Samuel 21, David gives up seven of Saul's sons to be killed by the Gibeonites because of Saul's blood guilt. This is in response to God saying that the blood guilt was causing a famine, suggesting that restitution needed to be made. The Gibeonites defined the terms, but it still reads as though God is satisfied by the killings because he lifts the famine afterwards. Was having Saul's sons killed to address Saul's blood guilt what God had in mind? I do not know how I would go about discussing this story with someone. It seems brutal and unfair. So let me summarize the story really quick just for people who aren't familiar, and then we'll actually kind of walk through it a little bit together. What happens in 2 Samuel 21 is David has become king. Saul is dead. Saul's son Jonathan is dead. And we're still in kind of a time of upheaval, but David's king now. And the text says there's a famine in Israel for three years. So you got to picture that. I mean, that's the kind of thing when you're reading scripture, you just blow right by it. But slow down and go three years of famine. This is a horrible situation. And so David goes to God and says, what happened? Why is there a famine on the land? And God says the famine is because of Saul's blood guilt against the Gibeonites, which is a people group that Saul had mistreated during his life. And so it says there's blood guilt against the Gibeonites. And so that's why there's a famine. So as, as Jacob said, David goes to the Gibeonites and says, hey, what do you, what do you want me to do about this? There's blood guilt. What, what, what could I do for you? And they say, give us seven of Saul's sons. David gives them seven of Saul's sons. They kill them. Some other stuff happens and the plague goes away. And so on a surface reading, you go like, this sounds pagan. This sounds like Canaanite religion. Like this doesn't sound like the God of the Bible. He, he wants blood and then they killed these seven sons and he's satisfied. But that's not 
the whole story? No. You want to walk us through? But it may be, and this this will be what we're getting at, it may be one of the things the text is trying to get you to wrestle with. Um, and what I mean by that is oftentimes the Bible isn't as specific as we want it to be. And when it's, sometimes it's just, that's just the way it is. But oftentimes it's not, it's keeping details hidden from you so that you actually begin to wrestle with what's taking place. Now that's, that's a good thing, but the bad thing about in this passage, there's like eight things that aren't made specific that you're all kind of left with the level of ambiguity that you really got to wrestle through. But when you wrestle through all of those pieces, something really begins to emerge that is, is really profound. And and I will say, as we'll see in a second, there is even just right on the surface, something different than how that, how my summary made it sound that you don't even have to dive 10 levels deep into time's sake. Maybe we do a middle, a middle version, not the deep, deep dive into it. Not the, the, the quick one. Okay. Let's kind of walk, walk through this. Uh, you can pull up my screen, Kevin, anytime you chapter 21 verse one. Uh, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, for for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. That's verse one. Verse two, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Okay, you, you, you probably as a reader should stop there and see that David goes to God and he's like, why is there this famine? God says, there's blood guilt. Now, it's possible this text is telling you that David's next response should be, God, what should I do? What should I do about the blood guilt? What should I do about the blood guilt? Because David does ask someone what he should do about the blood guilt. He does ask somebody, and it ain't God. He immediately then goes, oh, there's blood guilt. Let me go talk to the Gibeonites, see what they have to say. And the Gibeonites be, man, we want all of Saul's sons dead. Now, you got to stop there because... Is it possible that David went and asked the Gibeonites because there's a good chance the Gibeonites would give him an answer that would be politically advantageous for him? So who might usurp David's throne? Who might be potential future threats to the throne of David and his children? It would be Saul's sons. the sons of Saul. The sons of Saul could make a claim for the throne. They already had been. They already, I mean, yeah, exactly. There's been this kind of low-level civil war going on. That's right. That's right. And so, but the text doesn't say. You could just, maybe, maybe not. But what, what I want you to see is that oftentimes the Bible is an inv- inviting you in to chew on these things. Okay, so then they go, the Gibeonites, man, let's, we, you got to kill all of, of Saul's sons. And so David complies and, and he does this. He gives the sons over to the Gibeonites. We're summarizing so we don't have to read mm-hmm. a huge chunk, but he gives them over. And again, just to re- to make even more clear something that Isaac hinted at a minute ago, it's a really important lesson that don't assume that the main character in the story is doing the right thing. I think that's a key in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that just because David's kind of the hero of the story, don't assume he's doing the right thing here. Yeah, and then verse 8, the king took the two sons of Rizpah and the daughter of, the, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, different than Mephibosheth previously in the story, yeah. and the five sons of Merab. So there's two women who have a total of seven sons, two and five, and they all go and are killed. And it says they are hung on a mountain. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning 
of barley harvest. Now, verse 10, this is, this is where it gets. Now, important note here, right? Yeah. Because blood guilt, okay, what do you Gibeonites want to satisfy the blood guilt? Give me Saul's sons. David does that, they kill them. The famine does not end. Verse 10, then Rispa, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and, sackcloth, sorry, and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she, oh yeah, we should stop right there. I wanted to keep going, but yeah. I already got to how, stop. How long is that? Okay, so from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. We're, we're talking roughly six-month period. So... Sons are hung. They're dead. But the rain is still not coming to cure the famine. Now, you have to read real slow to see that. You just read it to the end. It's like, oh, the, the sons are killed. And there's a lady. The, one of the moms is mourning. And one of the moms is mourning. But you've heard about a three-year famine. Blood guilt is the problem. David and the Gibeonites do what they think they should do. And six months pass without the famine being lifted. That's incredibly important. It goes on and says, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beast of the field by night. So pause here. Day after day, this woman is up day and night doing her best to make sure that no scavengers, vultures, birds come and eat the decaying corpses of her children. She has seen the most horrific, vile, Thing imaginable and she's staring at it and protecting these bodies from the scavengers and it's this way of saying this this woman could not save her sons in life but she's right. doing whatever she can to save them in death yeah you could imagine almost like the imagery of the the power of of the king descends upon these sons and she can't defend them but mm-hmm. when these unclean birds of prey are coming down yeah. the scavengers Here's something I actually can do. And we're used, I mean, in the modern world, we, we have no idea about bodies decaying like this. This is something that is beyond grotesque and, and gross for any of our modern standards. And this is what this woman is seeing. And there's something about this. She has a, a refusal to leave mm-hmm. until something is done here. You know what I'm saying? It's yep. not, she's not going to be there forever. But she's, she has this persistence that, like, I'm not leaving until, until justice is done yeah. here. Now, in what sense, how could justice be done? Well, you can't bring the kids back, back to life, so justice can't be done there. But the bodies are left hanging. Okay, so in the law, in the Old Testament, it says, Cursed is any man who dies on a tree. So their bodies are hanging on this mountain, and they die this cursed death because of blood guilt. Then the bodies are supposed to be taken down. At nightfall. You, you, don't, you don't let the sun go down at this. But yet, day after day, nightfall after nightfall, these bodies aren't taken down. It's, so there's this sense of further injustice taking place. And then verse 11. When David, told, when David was told what Rispa, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Gabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. So, like, what? so crazy. What? So he, David hears about Rizpah holding the six-month vigil over the bodies of her sons. Yes. And this is how the this is how the Old Testament is, you guys. It doesn't say what David thinks. It doesn't say 
why he reacted the way he did, but it says he saw her do that. And what he does is not go get those bones no. right away, which is what you would expect. He goes, oh, Dina Bless says this is a Mother's Day story. She's right. It's true. This is what we should do on Sunday instead of what we were planning to do. It's true. So instead, he goes and gets the bodies of Saul, the former king, and Jonathan from where they have been because they have not been treated correctly yet. They have not been given a proper burial yet either. Crazy. So it's almost as if Rispa is shaming David in a number of ways. He not only is not taking these bodies down, which he is supposed to do, he didn't do it to Saul or Jonathan. So, so it, it seems as if he's looking at her in, in this tragic way, honoring these bodies of her sons. And what it triggers in him somehow is, I haven't done right even by J Saul and Jonathan, who's David's absolute you know, closest friend yeah. and companion. Anyway, continue. And Crazy. they buried the, uh, verse 14, and they buried the bones of Saul. Oh, wait, hold on. Thir make sure you, you do 13 too, because that's where they gather oh, the other and bones. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. Okay, so now it's all of these people. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zillah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king had commanded. After that, God responded to the plea for the land. So, super important. At first reading, you get the idea that when David kills the sons of Saul, the blood guilt's gone and the rain comes. It's after. God responds to the plea of the land after the bodies that were hung were removed and the bones of Jonathan and David are given their proper burial. Which is a full six months after the death of Saul's sons. Now... There's so many different ways to go at this, but one way that I, what I think is taking place is David doesn't do what he should. He should go to the Lord and ask what's taking place. But even if that's, if I'm reading into that, the important thing is that then he goes to the Gibeonites and the Gibeonites seek retributive justice. They're like, we've been harmed, go kill them. And David is like, cool. Now text doesn't say, does he do that for his own political motivations? Right. Or is he just going, there's blood guilt. I got to get away with this. Give you nights, want more people dead. Got to do it. But either way. It doesn't work. It, it does not work. But what makes it work is this woman. And this is where it's this Mother's Day kind of story. And, and it's true. Is a, is a woman, a mother who has experienced the horrific loss of her children. The boys whom she loves. She refuses to let those bodies hang. And she fights off the predators to shame the world, shame the systems, all of it, until they're, they're given a proper burial and along with Jonathan and, with Jonathan and um, Saul. And when all of that happens, it's not violent retributive justice, eye for an eye that brings healing to the land. It's giving honor to the dead. And in David's case, actually giving honor to an enemy, Saul. Yeah. Then God goes, the blood guilt's gone. And and that's that's the mystery. And this is like Isaac said at the beginning. This is how Hebrew, I mean, Tim Mackey, who we love, Bible scholar who we love, responsible for the Bible project, he, t he calls the Old Testament Jewish meditation literature because you are meant to read the story and think about it and do that over and over and over again and see new things in it. And in a story like this, there's something really mysterious about there's blood guilt. 
against Saul and his house. And the thing that eventually takes that away is the body of Saul and, and his sons being treated properly. And that's, I mean, that's wildly counterintuitive. Yeah. And the thing that on a human level makes sense, which is, well, then kill, kill his sons and restore, mm-hmm. you know, pay the guilt. That doesn't work. And the, only, and the people whose idea it was, was the Gibeon. And it's almost like the thing that David has to see in order to realize what he actually should do is this mother who's been so mistreated mm-hmm. and so and is kind of the victim of these giant power plays happening at a you know geopolitical level yeah. she's she demonstrates what actually is important in the situation and so there's there's deeply mysterious stuff going yeah. on here and okay here's another layer there's blood guilt because of what Saul did but the blood guilt is gone when David does what he should have done so is a part of the blood guilt the f- the fact that David is guilty in all of this as well. Cause mm. it says when he does, when he takes those bones of, of it's not even specific. It's, it's all kind of just a blanket statement of all, all the, the people who are hung on their bones, but it could be a way of saying you're, you're a part of this violent circular kind of ongoing destruction. Um, it's wild. Yeah. And, and so here's the 32nd answer to the question that is like the easy apologetic. Cause your question was, I don't know how I would discuss this. The quick answer is, oh, no, no, that's not what God wanted because it doesn't work. So he says there's blood guilt and David and the Gibeonites come up with a solution and then the the famine stays in effect for six more months. So that's not what the answer is. No, that's not what God wanted because it doesn't work. Um, What God did want, dude, it's mysterious, confusing. Yeah, but I think it has something to do with where everyone's contributing to these violent acts. And the way to resolve that is not with more violence, but with actually doing right, even to your enemies. And bringing right closure to the cycle and of the violence. And the key figure who reveals that, who shines the spotlight of truth on all of this, is the mourning mother as she cares for the corpse of her sons. Yeah, that's powerful. The cycle of violence is stopped when somebody absorbs the wrongdoing in that mm-hmm. sense. That David, who's been wronged by Saul over and over again, and refused at that time to lift his hand against Saul when he closes the loop yeah. by taking his enemy and honoring him. Crazy. Hopefully that answered your question and then some. Um, let's see. A couple more? we got time for a couple more. In the chat, feel free to throw in any thoughts or questions um, either on what we've been talking about or any other questions you want answered. So here's a quick, another kind of quick one. Um, you talked about old violence in the Old Testament. And um, we had a whole episode on that. What about the violent Psalms? Now there are these Psalms and you're, you know, if you think of the Psalms, your typical association with them is that they're these nice songs, you know, God help me. I'm, I need to, I'm crying out to God either to worship him or to ask for his help. Mm-hmm. But then if you're just reading through the Psalms, you'll suddenly find the Psalmist saying some horrible stuff. Yeah. These are my enemies. May the teeth be broken out of their mouth. May their children be wander fatherless on the earth kind of. And, um, they're, they can be horribly violent. They're called imprecatory psalms because they're they're praying violence and judgment against somebody else. Um, and this is actually a question I've been asked by many people, just as a pastor. Like, why are why are there these horribly violent psalms? I thought God was because you read like a, that. You do that Bible plan where you read a psalm a day. Yeah, it's like blessed is the man who's by the stream, and you know. <laughs> I love that one that says blessed is the man who's by the stream. It's my favorite psalm. Yeah. <laughs> blessed is this, you know, as as the gazelle is thirsty for the waters. Mm. See, I'm doing some next level paraphrasing. That's right good. Now. As the gazelle is thirsty for the waters, for some waters. 
So my nephesh longs after you. Yeah. So and but then you get to kick out the teeth of the wicked, which was also the first line of an early nineties POD song called Silah. Does it say that? It's yeah. I can't understand what he yeah. says at the beginning of Silah because the vocal production on that album is the, the death of the wicked. Oh yeah. Um and you're just going like, what in the world? Like, how could you be praying this? And one of the things you have to understand is what Sam talked about. There's a type of, and there's multiple types of Psalms. One of the types of Psalms is a, is a, it's a category. It's called imprecatory. And in that it's this crying out for God to kind of bring down justice. Now, what that justice looks like though, is often in these violent categories with these people. But in the Psalms, what you're seeing is people cry out to God. Um, and it gives us an example and a, and a model for us to be honest with God with our feelings. So, for example, it's like if you were to pray, God, how dare you? How could you let this happen? That's not necessarily a theologically sound righteous. Yeah, it's not the best reaction to the situation, but it's the truth. But it's the truth. And what the Psalms teach us is that God allows space for us to bring our true emotions, what we're really thinking and experiencing at that time and bring them before him. And oftentimes the Psalms do that. And depending upon what the person's thinking at that time, it's next, it's next level. Yeah. And there's something about the kind of like assigning to God of the job of answering that request that is actually right. And even not just old Testament, but even Christian that who, who does vengeance belong to? Vengeance belongs to God. Yeah. Who's the one who's going to right every wrong and handle the, the job of judgment. God. So when you, in, in moments of, of anger and frustration, say, God, here's what I'd like to see happen. I'd like to see this person get their teeth kicked out, but I'm not going to kick their teeth out. Yeah. I'm going to say, that's what I want you to do. And now it's your job to do yeah. that or not. And because we're Christians, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And that's why it kind of bothers people because you don't see, well, if, the, if God's inspiring that, well, does that mean God wants it? And it's kind of this right. circular loop because the, it, the, it's a cat, the, the Psalms are in a category of their own as a prayer and a kind of song. And so what you just have to understand is it's an inspired human response to the wicked that's being done and they're writing it down. But that doesn't mean necessarily that God actually wants to kick out yeah. the team. And in fact, you're being modeled, David, instead of doing the violence, giving that to God. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and the so, answer is going to be no, or it could be that God's judgment is coming and that's actually what's going to happen. But what Jesus teaches us is he teaches us a, an even fuller response. So he doesn't say just get away with the human emotions type of thing, but it's, it's the working on your heart so that you can get to a place where you can pray for your enemies, mm. that you could bless your enemies. That you could wish them well, yeah. not just wish violence on them and ask God mm -hmm. to do that. But yeah, that's, that's the thing is it's different it is very different for somebody to say, God, I wish this would happen to this person um, than to go do that. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of the key. It's, it's, not, it's not giving you license to go and do whatever violent things are being described in the psalm. It's actually the opposite of that. They're saying, God, this is your job. Here's my suggestion for how you handle the well, situation. And, and I th again, I think it's important for people to understand that God allows space for you to bring your real emotions Oftentimes you think your prayers have to be like this formulaic, theologically sound. Yeah, cleaned up. Father, everything in my life, I have nothing but thankfulness. 
my life is so blessed by you. And it's like, what if you honestly feel like I hate my life in this moment? I yeah. hate my circumstances. I am overwhelmed and I hate everything about it. You are supposed to take that to God. Yeah. Now, for a Christian to say, I hate everything about my life, the theologically sound is, you've been sla- saved, you're already seated in the heavenly places, the will of God in Christ, be thankful, give thanks all of the time, pray without ceasing. That's what you ought to be doing. But the space is allowed to you be like, I, I am I am depressed and I hate X, Y, Z. Yeah. Uh, and God doesn't, in the Psalms, he doesn't rebuke that. Um, he may have you on a journey out of those emotions, yeah. but that's often space, the Psalms are, by the way, which is yeah. interesting. If you read a whole Psalm, a lot of the time, these brutal, hopeless things resolve into trust. The Psalms, the, are, the, the Psalms that, that talk about lament are very much like that. They take you down into the depths. Like I am overwhelmed. I'm going to die. All my enemies surround me. I have no hope. It's and Scrooge then all of McDuck a sudden, all the way to the bottom, to of, the bottom of the thing. Of and, but it goes like, I have no hope. And then at a certain point it switches to you are my hope. Yeah. So and the it's famous meant to take you on that emotional journey because you need to go through that emotional journey. You can't bypass that. You and, and Christians do this. They fake it. They fake like everything is okay. They fake like there's no real problem. But unless you go down into that and then come out, you're not going to experience any real healing on yeah. the emotional level. It, the thing that makes me think of immediately, and Kevin, you can pull my Bible up here, is that um, Psalm 22, which famously yeah. Jesus quotes the first verse of on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Um, now, the theologically re- response would be like, God not, hasn't forsaken you. Don't you know that God will never leave you or not, forsake he's you? He's not far from you. Um, and it goes, I mean, it's this psalm is sad and heavy. It's, I cry by day, but you don't answer. I find no rest. Um, and so Jesus says that word, and there's been a lot of theological work done, and some of it, I think, misguided to a certain extent on what does it mean that Jesus feels forsaken in this moment? Yeah. Not realizing that Jesus knows all of Psalm 22. Yeah. When Jesus says the first line of Psalm 22, he knows the last line of Psalm 22. In fact, all the religious leaders who watched Jesus as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They know how that Psalm ends. Every yeah. last one of them, they would have had it memorized. And listen to the end. Now think about, this is like chill inducing. Jesus on the cross says the first verse, as he's dying for the sins of the world, and the very last line says, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And earlier, just a few verses before that, there's this line, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So Jesus, and this, it's so powerful. He expresses a genuine, I believe, feeling of what he's experiencing in that moment. But the way he does it is in the context of a psalm that contains the truth of it what he's actually resolve. accomplishing. Yeah. God has not forsaken me. In fact, in this moment, he is accomplishing what that psalm promised, that all the nations will turn yep. to him and that they'll tell of this to a people yet yep. unborn. So it's powerful. I mean, there, there are so many things that just Jesus says in moments of agony and moments of pain. Um, you know, the, there is a podcast that pointed out that when he says um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is sorrowful even unto death, that's a line from a psalm. So he's, he just, that's what comes out of him. Um, oh, dang, that post mill showed up late. He's a little late with only 13 minutes left in the show, The Obsessive Gardener. Welcome, man. Better Good to see you. Me. Better late than never. Just like uh, the post-millennialists themselves would say. Yeah, that's so yeah, true. Part, part of the... Uh, that one made Kevin chuckle. Kevin liked that. 
So, so part of the lesson here is like everything in the Bible, and we've said this over and over in this series, is you have to read the whole unit. So don't just take a verse. Um, and again, with the imprecatory stuff, it's brutal, it's harsh, but it's honest. I don't know about you, man, but on, the truth is I have probably my most honest and sincere prayers to God have been in times of frustration or like, like agony or like worry. And when I'm actually mm -hmm. like telling the truth about how I feel, including feeling like, where are you? The way the yeah. Psalms express that sometimes like this is, this is the kind of situation that you're supposed to be doing mm -hmm. something in God. Why aren't you? Um, and I felt more intimacy with God in those moments than almost any others. Honestly, we do we did a series on the Psalms and what we said was that the Psalms create the space for the full spectrum of human emotion to work. And what we mean by that is if, if you're in good times, there's a Psalm for you. If you're in down times, there's a Psalm for you. If you're in angry times, there's a Psalm for you. And there's space for the full spectrum of the, of all human emotion to be able to take place. And that's great news because if you go through those Psalms, you're going to find something for whatever situation you find yourself in because life isn't just all good or all bad. It is ups and downs, and you see that displayed in the Psalms. Yeah, so if you're angry, that's good news for you. Um, okay, a couple more, couple don't, more quick don't ones. Don't let the sun go down on that anger. Yeah, don't let it go down. Give room for the devil. That's a, that's a creepy verse, isn't it? Don't, <laughs> yeah. It's th that's sort of like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I'm serious. Yeah. That gives room for the devil. Man, that's a verse for Christians right now. Okay, a couple more and then we'll wrap up. Um, reading the book of Mark, I'm curious why sometimes Jesus would want word of his miracle spread, like the demoniac, and other times not, like with Jairus' daughter. I know there are other examples, but I don't see a common thread. So in Mark, sometimes it seems like Jesus is trying to keep everything secret. Sometimes it seems like he's totally fine going public with stuff. What's, why, what's the difference? There's a something called the messianic secret. And it's this idea that Jesus didn't want the whole nation to know exactly who he was until it was the right time. You see a little bit of that. What's interesting in the, the turning of the water to the wine miracle. It's like, it's not my time yet. Yeah. Um, and the whole point is that people have an idea of what the Messiah should be in Israel. And so Jesus has to accomplish and do a number of things before that messianic secret kind of gets out. Um, and so Jesus typically will do a miracle or something and he's like, don't tell anybody. And it's so counterintuitive because it's like as Christians now we're supposed to evangelize. Yeah. So if we saw a, a miracle of heaven, we'd want to tell everyone we know what God had done has done for us. But many of the times in scripture, it's like not yet. And it's because Jesus has to get to a certain point and do certain things, perform certain miracles, speak certain words, so that then it's his time to go to the next level. Um, but what's interesting is there's exceptions to the rule. And in this case, in the Gospel of Mark, one of the exceptions to the rule is, is a demon-possessed man, but he's from a place called the Decapolis. It's like the Ten Cities. But, you know, long story short, the Decapolis is a Gentile region. Yeah, it's the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where Jesus and some of the other mm -hmm. disciples grew up. Across the water, there's non-Jewish settlement where people living there, no knowledge of Torah. Gentiles don't, they don't know Torah. They don't have a messianic expectation. So there's not this need to be like, hey, keep it down. Because yeah, because part, part of the fear, right, is that, and this actually happens a few times in the Gospels, that people are going to get riled up and say, the Messiah's here to kick Rome out of Israel. Let's, let's get let's the make army him, together, yep. make him a king, and that they're going to make him king by force. That language is in the Gospels. Yeah. And so 
But if he, but to your point, if he's in the garrisons and all these guys are Gentiles farming pigs, they can tell each other about this. And if the, you're a Roman, you're not going to be like, let's try to overthrow Rome with our right. new Jewish Messiah. So and it's, it's not, not an issue. Even the, even like a healing or a miracle is not going to like trigger a thought of like, wait, is this the long-awaited Messiah? They're not waiting for one. Yeah. So generally, I mean, there's there's an, I mean, I guess there's another aspect of this, right? Which is that the closer he gets to his confrontation with the authorities yeah. in Israel, the more public he becomes. Yeah, turning point happens in a few of the Gospels where Jesus asked ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? And someone like, oh, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. Um, but then he's like, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, Simon, but God in heaven has. And at that point, when Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah, son of the living God, there's also, an, that's, that's like level two, like if there's different levels, that's another changing of the levels yeah. where it's like, okay, someone has confessed the true identity of Jesus. And so as you said, as you get closer to it, you get kind of this more and more bold action being take, taken place by, by Jesus. To the point of, you know, he's, he's going in and confronting the temple system. Yeah. And turning over tables and kind of making bigger statements in public and stuff. But that's the point is it's not that he doesn't ever want people to know who he is or what he's doing. It's that it's not the right time yet. So he's telling demons, be quiet. Don't tell people who I am. Yeah. Um, but then by the end, but, and, and again, when he's in Gentile territory, not as much of a fear. But then by the end of the story, he's totally open. Um, and so, yeah, that, I think it's helpful, too, because sometimes, you know, like you said earlier, we're supposed to, aren't we supposed to tell people about Jesus? Sometimes we read the Gospels um, and we read them for direct instruction to us a little bit too concretely mm -hmm. when sometimes what's happening here is very specific to that Yeah, when well, Jesus heals a leper and he's like, go show yourself to the priests and do all according to the law of Moses. Yeah. Like, we don't, even, we don't e even understand that context. We don't have a, a temple with priests that we go to. We just would receive the miracle. Yeah. And, and the important thing to note is that at, after the crucifixion and resurrection, then Jesus says, go therefore and tell everybody. Yeah. Baptize all nations, man, get the word out. Yeah, and I always tell people that because the, a question I get a lot because of my work in missions is, there's all these weird instructions, you know, when Jesus sends out the 72 and he's, you know, he kind of sends out these groups and there's all these really specific rules that they're given. Um, and so I've had a lot of questions like, well, what does it mean that, you know, if you try to share the gospel and then it's not received that you shake the dust off your feet? Like, how do I apply that? And my big thing is I'm like the controlling command for you is the great commission at the end yeah. of the story. And everybody writing and reading these stories knows that that's the one we're following. And so it's not that you can't learn principles from those things, but that's yeah. not the order given directly to yeah. you. Um, otherwise, we'd still be, you know, okay, well, we got to go first to the Jewish area and then we go to the Gentiles. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, just be careful to, to read everything within the context of the genre that it's a part of. You want to try to get one more in in the next five minutes or call it there? What do you say? How hard is it? Not super hard. Shouldn't be super hard. You're preaching on it uh, in a few days, so you should be up on it. Let's Ready? do it. All right. I'm ready. Sam, I've been reading and saying the Shema daily. Legit, by the way. So should you be, watcher. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. In my NASB, verse 5 reads, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Some versions say strength instead of might. But why do I hear some saying this prayer, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind? Good night, everyone. We don't know. A great theology know. Thursday. Okay, <laughs> no, here's, okay. I'm going to give you a quick answer and then the bigger answer. I'm actually preaching on Deuteronomy 
um, this Sunday. So uh, you'll get a more full answer. But the gist of it is this, is all of those Hebrew words are, it's not that they're hard to translate, but when you take them into English, there's different nuances. So if I say all of my heart in right. English, that might mean something different, but similar to someone in first century Jewish world saying all of my heart. Similarly, if I say with all of my soul, what does soul mean to a 21st century modern American versus what does soul mean, or more importantly, the Hebrew word that's that's translated soul in this case, nefesh. What does right. nefesh mean in to an average Israelite wandering around in the desert during the days of Moses in the wilderness wanderings? And so you're trying to capture what nefesh means into English. And some people would be like, man, I think it's, it's, it's something like soul. But then they say, no, soul's fine, but maybe it should be spirit or something, yeah. Yeah, something like that. But the gist of it is this. The Shema is basically saying, love God with the sum total of your being. Right. And so when Jesus repeats the command in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Mark, you might have similar words or maybe one or two. Yeah, that's different. where he says mind instead of might, I believe. Yeah. And so again, what what may so I'll give you an example. So sometimes ancient people thought that your gut was the seat of your emotions. So if I were to say like, love God with all of your emotions, yeah. I I what to a modern person you don't think guts. Yeah, you say heart. Um, but they would say with your bowels. Yeah. So the Greek word splachnizomai uh, is that's often a great. Trans- it's a great word by the way. Yes, yeah, splachnizomai, translated as compassion, and it literally means a moving of the bowels. So to have compassion on someone is to like. Have a rumbly in your tumbly. As a rumbling in your tumbly type of thing. <laughs> but we wouldn't say that. Um, we might say we were moved with all of our heart, not moved with all of our bowels. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is capture these concepts and bring them into the modern English person's vernacular and language. And that sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's difficult. More often than not, it's pretty much the same. It's just like someone's going to go, okay, we're not going to say it with all of my bowels. We're going to say with all of my right. heart. And in general... Like you said a second ago, there's a bit of a forest trees issue here, which is that the point is heart, soul, might, mind. What yeah. the point is, these are meant to capture all of your being. It's they're totalizing phrases, so it's all about mm-hmm. et, with everything in you, love the Lord your God. Yeah, some total of your being. And so it wouldn't matter if it was mind or might or strength or might or, you know. And I'm sure you're going to talk about soul on Sunday and what that means. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. so. Th- so that's a, that's a great answer. Um, the short answer is is Jesus says mind in the New Testament. So if you hear someone quoting the Shema and they say mind instead of might, it's because they're probably quoting Jesus quoting it. Yes. Um, but the the deeper answer is, and he's quote, he's quoting it in uh, Greek. So right. <laughs> the New Testament is written in Greek. So he is quoting it in Greek, which is being translated to English. So then, like if moving of the bowels is in this language, then in this language it might mean you're moving of your stomach or something like that. And then over here, the concept would be the moving of your heart type of thing. So, but all of that to say is really brilliant. People do a good work to make sure the original intended meaning of those Hebrew words is communicated in 21st century kind of English. There you go. 829. Let's call it right on time. Thank you guys so much for being here next week. New series all about the church. Have a good week. Kevin. Kevin.